Hi, this is John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper, and you're listening to Without Your Head. <laughs> I love a girl who give you head and then let you keep it. <laughs> Oops, she's without her head. <laughs> of Decapitation Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by actor, director, producer, and very sharp-dressed man, Bill Duke. How are you doing? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing it. Now, uh, I recently saw Mandy, and uh, I loved it. And uh, it was a very bizarre movie. So uh, how did you get involved in Mandy? Uh, the um, the uh, director called me and uh, said he wanted to be a part of it. And if I wanted to work with Nicolas Cage, and I said, of course, he's one of my favorite actors. And so after that, we just went to Brussels, Belgium, and um, had a good time. Yeah. So what was that? Because, you know, your scene obviously is a, a one-on-one um, conversation with Nicolas Cage. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, Nicolas is an is a incredible professional. Um, he doesn't bring the ego to the set. He comes to the set in character. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Working with him was wonderful. I mean, um, he listens. He wants to work with you. He asks you what you need. And he's just a joy to work with. So I had a great time. Yeah. Uh, what was, uh, besides the work with Nicolas Cage, was there anything about the character that that, uh, that interests you? My character or his character? Oh, actually both, or the story itself. Uh, the story itself was, um, you know, fascinating to me, uh, you know, and it's, you know, it's about love and his unconditional love for his lady. 
Um, but it connects with you humanly in the sense that if someone did to you what they did to the one that he loved, I think you can identify. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Since the movie unless is like, so, unless, oh, I'm sorry. Unless you're, unless you're Gandhi. <laughs> right. So since the movie is so visual, um, how different was it once you saw the finished movie? When you say how different was it, what do you mean? Like uh, from when, you, when you're reading the script, I don't know if you read the whole script or if you just read your lines, uh, and then the you script. see them. Okay, so how different is the movie once it's you know completed and, and all the visuals are there? Uh, and the sounds there, it's got a really uh, uh, great score, and it's very like uh, kind of pounding you with with the score and everything. So. Was it how you imagined the movie would be? No. I mean, there's so many um, elements that the director um, added that enhanced the script. That, that's what great directors do. I mean, you read the vision and then you, 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 you know, and, and you create a context for it uh, with the approval of the author, which he wrote it too. But the point is, is that the sound, the, the visuals, the actors, the, whatever adds so much to, I mean, when you read a script you're sitting alone reading a script mm-hmm. um but with every other element it just takes it to a whole different level now had you uh had you known the director before panos no well uh what is he like Look, as a person funny yes <laughs> <He has, laughs> he has a ratchet sense of humor um funny brilliant um and totally committed to his work i mean he has a he has a, how can I say, a visual relationship with film, which, which is rare. I mean, he tells the story with the script, but also he tells a lot of the story with the camera. Does that make any sense? Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a very polarizing movie. So um, what were your thoughts, you know, when you, was that, at the premiere, was that your first time seeing the finished movie? Yeah. First uh, time I well, Mm-hmm. Sorry. So, uh, what was your thoughts, and what what did what did how did people take the movie in the audience? They gave the standing ovation, mm-hmm. and 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 a lot of people were very they were very young. You know what I'm saying? That mm-hmm. millennial and pre millennial audience, but they were into. When I say into it, I mean every moment of it. They were into it, and I think everybody was surprised by the reviews and. You know, Rotten Tomato, I think, gave it a 95 or 96 percent approval. I mean, people responded in the audience like Rotten Tomato responded. You know, it's like Rotten Tomato says it's not a it's not a movie for everybody. But for those fans who are into horror and the rest of it, it's a perfect fit. And I think now they, they, they're doing some new releases in different theaters because of the demand of the movie around the country. So it's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah, here in uh, Boston, they uh, they played it for like uh, two weekends, you know, for midnight mo- midnight movie screenings, which is a really cool way to see the movie. Mm-hmm. Did it do well there? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it was sold out uh, on several of the screenings. Wow! In advance, pretty far in advance. Yeah. So, uh, did Amazing. Did you, uh, since, you know, your character just kind of appears, you don't really know the history between you, you and Nicholas's cage as uh, a character. Do you, do you yourself think of like, uh, what the relationship is like, or if they have any backstory? Oh yeah. As an actor, you have to, I mean, you know, you, uh, mine was that, you know, we had a military, 
um, experience, and I was the arms expert, and um, he um, and I connected. Um, we didn't we didn't keep in touch, uh, but you know it was like we we both live in, in the same remote area. I mean of the country, and we like getting away because um, of what we've gone through, probably in the war, etc. And he asked me to keep some of his weapons for the future. And it's been probably been nine or ten years since I've seen him. And uh, he just shows up. Uh, and I know what he's there for because he doesn't just visit. And so mm-hmm. that's really what the, you know, conversation we had. Yeah. Yeah. This is so, this is awesome. I loved it. So uh, I just want to ask about uh, Predator since, um, since a new one just came out. Have you seen the new one? Yes. What were your thoughts on I thought, it? Yes. Well, it's different, you know. Um, you know, it's it's got a lot of humor in it, and so on. And um, a switch on what was done previously, because the other one was more of an action adventure that took you into not the city but the predator's house. Mm-hmm. And uh, since you were in his home, he didn't like us being there, and so um, it was like more danger, adventure, um, mystery. We were all taken off one at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, that added, and, and what, what I think Shane did so brilliantly in Predator 1 was he, he, he enabled you to see the soldiers as a family of brothers mm-hmm. and people that you liked. And when they started killing them off one at a time, you know, you would hope that they wouldn't kill the other ones off. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was one of those movies where, um, one of the first I've seen where the so-called heroes of the movie don't survive, and the person who's, who's the big hero of the movie almost dies. So mm-hmm. it was yeah. like, you know, it was interesting. Yeah. The original. Yeah. yeah, and that's what makes it so powerful, because you actually care about the characters uh, when they're being picked off, as opposed to uh, a movie where you're kind of, not necessarily rooting for the villain, but you're just kind of looking to see the cool, you know, kills or whatnot. But, you you know, you're, you're actually, disapp- you know, you're sad when uh, when the different guys get killed. And everyone had such a good chemistry together. Um, did that just come naturally, or did you like uh, spend time with each other? You know, outside of the of filming, we spent a lot of time together. Um, and then the conditions were so ridiculously horrible that we it bonded us. <laughs> I'll give you two examples. Um, one, the uh, first week we were there, the um, the caterer uh, put uh, you know netting around the eating place, but we were in the middle of the jungle, and so. It didn't make any difference. There were bugs in our food every day we, that first week. And we just said, okay, we're not eating this crap, you know, because, but the fact is there was no more food. And so by the second week, the bugs were called protein. Uh, did you, do you, do you end up, uh, do you ever get a taste for, for uh, quote unquote protein? Hell no. <laughs> 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 so uh one of the know, yeah go you know the, sorry you know the story about the original you know the predator you saw was not the original predator you know that right yeah i just uh actually i didn't know that originally till i started uh doing some research for the interview and uh, uh i don't know how many people listen know this but uh you tell the story if you like well you know the original predator was smaller and this guy who was playing the predator had to be on these 
uh, wires and slice the trees and stuff, and they were going to superimpose in post-production the body and the lasers and everything. And um, he had passed out twice from dehydration. He had to wear this suit. And it was like over 100 degrees, the weather sometimes, and he just passed out twice. So the producer went over to him the second time and said, if you pass out again, you're costing us money. I got to fire you. He says, listen, I'm not doing that on purpose. I'm, I'm dehydrated. He says, you pass out again, you're fired. Two weeks went by. Everything was good. Guy passed out again. Kudus went over and said, you're fired. That guy was Jean-Claude Van Damme, his first movie in the country. Wow. So did you have, like, much interaction with him at the time? With who? With Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, yeah. We spent time on the beach and talking and everything. We had a good time, yeah. Good yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. So uh, how long after that did he become, you know, like Jean-Claude Van Damme, the action star? Oh, I think uh, like three years, four years after that. I mean, he, he, he really got up there for a while, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. So... When they did change then the Predator to like you know this uh, giant actor, uh, did that change the movie itself from how it was originally scripted? Um, I think there were some changes. I'm not, you know, sure what those changes all were, mm-hmm. but I remember uh, you know, many of like my lines stayed the same basically. But in terms of certain kinds of, I think strategic, you know, camera angles and due to the size of this, the. Um, the new predator, which was seven. He was a, the, the guy who played, I forgot his name, but brilliant guy. I think it was a dancer and a martial arts expert. And he was just like almost seven foot tall. Yeah. So did you first meet Arnold, uh, working on commando or had you known him before that? No commando. It's the first time we met. Yeah. So did you, uh, did you guys like become friends off that? Is that how you got involved in predator? Yeah. Yes, we became friends, and um, uh, Joel Silver um, liked my work in Commando, so when they were going to do Predator, they came to me and said, let's have a meeting. And we went over to the studio, and we talked, and they called me back next week and said, hey, you got the part. Uh, I read uh, Carl Weathers said that, um, you know, everyone would wake up, like, at 3 in the morning to, to work out, uh, and that he would he would wait and work out, like, away from everybody, so no one would know that like he uh i guess that he had to work out that he just was naturally like all muscular do you remember anything like that well it's bigger than that you know there were two ballrooms i think in the hotel and arnold bought out both ballrooms and had tractors and trailers from la ship in gyms and i say gyms i'm talking about treadmills and uh you know machines and dead weights and everything and these guys got up three o'clock in the morning the first thing they would do is to run for like eight or nine miles. Mm-hmm. And then they come back to the gym. Now we would be on the set at seven or seven thirty. They come back to the gym and work out for a couple of hours and then eat breakfast. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then go to the set. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Yeah. So I remember, you know, before like there was a sequel and a, a bunch of them, uh, like I would read that they they wanted to make a prequel at some point where it would be like the group of the guys before they fight Predator. Uh, do you remember? Is that true? Have you did you ever hear anything about that? No, I never heard that. No. Hmm. Would have been cool. What, what did they say they wanted to do again? Uh, to do like a prequel before Predator became before they did the sequel, then it became like a franchise. 
that they just they wanted to do a movie before Predator where it'd be about your group of guys, you know, going out and doing other missions. So I don't really think it would be like horror related, but right. No, I I don't I don't um I didn't I didn't hear about that. Yeah, maybe maybe it's not true then. <laughs> so hey, how about the, you know, it's Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, a famous scene where you're uh, you're shooting the machine gun. Uh, what's that experience like? Like, how heavy is that, and how long does it take? Well, the amazing thing about that is that the special effects guys, you see all the trees and branches. They spent days. They 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 literally cut the branches and trees right mm-hmm. in half, and then they put these little explosive pellets uh, where they had to glue it back together. So. And then they had this board when they put this, um, what is it, um, this metal thing across it, all of those explosions would blow the trees apart. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like hundreds and hundreds. So it's like the gun um, that I carried for the most part was rubber. It was like a, um, a helicopter machine gun. So that wasn't that heavy, but that sucker that I shot, I mean, you had to stand steady on both feet because it would push you back. Even though they were blanks, it's like they, they just fired rounds and rounds of bullets. Mm-hmm. And so it was powerful. Yeah. Uh, do you have any stories with uh, Jesse Ventura? <laughs> uh, Jesse was a sweetheart, man. Jesse, is, Jesse was, was, you know... It, what was great about what was great about the film it became a brotherhood, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, we uh, became friends. So it was easy to to mourn and be angry when these guys died because in real life, as actors, we all kind of bonded, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you know, but we were in the when I say the jungle, we were we had to drive at least thirty five or forty minutes up into the hills of Puerto Vallarta and there's nothing but coral snakes, spiders, scorpions, ants, mosquitoes, and bugs. And, uh-huh. and we had to, uh, you know, survive that. And we were trained by this guy, I think he was a special forces guy of how to work together to survive in that environment. And so, you know, after the film was over, you know, Jesse and I used to hang out a little bit and, then we became governor, you know, there was a whole other thing. So, yeah, it was, it was good working with him. Yeah. So how uh, long was how long was that shoot, at, you know, in the jungle? I, I, I don't remember the exact. It was, it was, it was a long time. And, and wasn't only Port of Arta, um, where you remember when he dives off the waterfall? Mm-hmm. That was in Palenque. That's down by the Guatemalan border where all the, uh, Aztec pyramids are. Oh, wow. We had to travel from Puerto down to Palenque, which is in, it's just incredible. I, it's like going to the pyramids in Egypt. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't know how they built those things, these high things with these gigantic, uh, not rocks, but these, I don't know what, they, what they're made of, but mm-hmm. it, was a, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Would you say that was the hardest shoot, just uh, location-wise, that you've ever done? Uh, let me think for a second here. Uh, 
as an actor, yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, I mean, I'm, you know, you know, you know how how poisonous coral snakes are. We'd be crawling on our bellies doing the scene, and the coral snake just passed right in front of your face. It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they it, one bite, you one bite, you're dead. And uh, I think Sonny Landon <laughs> um, got bitten by a scorpion one day with the rushing to the hospital. It was, it was. I mean, it, we were in the, we were in the jungle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Does that help you as an actor get more into the role? The environment. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. It's like when you literally are playing the role of somebody who has to survive, and you are literally trying to survive. It helps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, I've always heard uh, uh, Sonny Landon was an interesting character. Uh, what was he like? Sonny was the wild one. Uh -huh. uh, they, they, Joe had to, I mean, Joe had to hire a security guard for Sonny because he would get in trouble, you know, if, um, if he drank a little bit or something. And we used to go to this club and we loved Sonny, but Sonny would, after a couple of drinks, uh, he'd be dancing. And then next thing you know, he was crawling on the floor. Uh, looking up ladies' dresses, and so um, we had to bring them back. Uh -huh. uh, it was uh, how it, it was. It was. It was. It was. It was interesting. But it's right. uh -huh. So I saw it on great, uh, great, you know, great guy though. Yeah, great people. Mm -hmm. I saw that you have a you have a autobiography coming out. They'll do by forty years. Yes, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. You can buy it on Amazon. Pre-order it now. But November on um, November fifteenth, it comes out in bookstores in every place. It's called um, Bill Duke: Forty Years in Front of and Behind the Camera, and it talks about my life, but also my career and how it started, and the people who helped me along. And I try to give advice to young people who are coming into business now because um, it's been a paradigm shift from uh, film and TV to media, and to survive these days, you have to have certain skills. So I talk about that in the book also. Mm -hmm. So what was the experience like to go back over your 40-year career? It wasn't painless, man. I went, you know, um, how can I say? I was one of the first black directors um, to do TV. Uh, Michael Schultz had done some and, uh, you know, uh, a couple of other folks. But I'll give you an example. You'll see it in my book when I <laughs> – mm -hmm. uh, I was the first black director on Dallas. And I drove to the gate, set my window down, mm -hmm. and the, the guard looks at me and he says, who are you delivering for? Oh, wow. I said, what do you say? He said, I said, who are you delivering for? And I looked at him, you know, it seemed like an hour. You know, I looked in his face and I wanted to curse or something, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, I'm delivering my talents as the first black director on Dallas, could you open the gate, please? And the, the gas in his voice uh, was rewarding, put it that way. <laughs> uh huh. How, how do you uh, how do you keep your cool in situations like that? Well, or maybe you, know, you didn't. Huh? You you have to look at the bigger picture. You know, um, uh, our family always taught us, and this is something that I learned the hard way. Sometimes you got to lose a battle to win the war, you know? 
Mm-hmm. If your focus is the, if your focus is the war itself, uh, then some battles you, you you deal with some things you don't want to deal with, but your focus has to be the battle, the, the war itself. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, was that and also tip- the thing that's helped me more than anything is trans- transcendental meditation. I learned transcendental meditation like uh, in the seventies, and that saved my life. I meditate every day, so it keeps me centered and focused. Hmm. I didn't know that. Interesting. So, yeah. would you say that was, that experience was typical of uh, of when you started directing uh, TV shows, or was that the the exception? Uh, it was. How can I say? Um, I I, met, I had a, the good fortune of meeting a lot of people who helped me a great deal. Mm-hmm. But there were incidents uh, that are in my book, and you'll see if you read it that yeah. were very challenging uh, to me as a human being as a black man in, in the business. Um, but then there were instances where I was embraced by networks and studios and line producers and executive producers that, and actors who, you know, um, when I, my, when I directed Dallas, um, where uh, my first time directing Dallas, uh, Larry Hagman took me into a corner. He says, I'm glad you're here. Look forward to working with you. And we're going to get along fine as long as you have me out every day by two. And I said, Mr. <laughs> Hagman, you'll be out by one thirty. <laughs> <laughs> so I had him out by one thirty every day. He works, and we got along. Yeah, <laughs> right. How did you? Uh, why did you get into directing? Was it something you always wanted to do? Uh, I something I always wanted to do, man. But I would to be honest with you, I, I directed theater and wrote theater for years. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to direct them. I was intimidated though by the by the, the cameras, the, the lights, the crews, the dollies, the booms, it's just overwhelming. Because stage, you have a proscenium and you have actors and lights and that's it. Mm-hmm. But I had a show called Palmerstown um, um, USA, uh, Norman Lear and Alex Haley, and I was one of the co-leads in it. And um, um, after that show, I didn't work for two years. And I said, I better get do something and so i applied to afi i got in and that afi tony volani who was uh, the head of afi at the time and gene Furstenberg, they they ran a great school and it taught me a lot about editing directing storyline character character arc story arc all of those things and i was very fortunate because from a, a technological point of view afi was was it was incredible Mm-hmm. And so I got my chops from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of technology, how how is like the changes in technology affected you as a filmmaker over over the decades? Well, man, um, I you know I've been a purist. You know, I, I like film. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I, I I started out with people never probably never heard of this word movieolas. Remember movieolas? Uh, and, no, I don't. Flatbeds, uh, flatbed. You literally, they say, they say cutting film now, right? Mm-hmm. In those days, there were two reels, and that went through this this device, and it showed on the screen. And if you wanted to cut two scenes together, the editor had a razor, a razor blade. He cut one piece of film, the other piece of film, and then he taped them together. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's how I started out. Now, 
Then it comes along digital. And I've tried to stay with digital. I try to stay with filmmaking, but then digital and the cameras and the quality took over. So now I shoot digital, but I'm still, I love film. But I, I was in a film recently in New York City with Steven Soddenberg. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing because it's the third film he's done like this. He shot the entire film with, I think, four or five iPhone 8s. There was no real lighting crew. He used mostly available lights. And then when they did the dolly shots, they rolled them around in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. And then he would eat dinner and go home that night and cut the footage the same day. Wow. That's it. That tell you something about how things have changed? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty well. How about like uh, streaming sites and stuff like that? How's the, how's that affected you? You know, you just recently would it be like things like would be on Amazon and Netflix and and things made specifically for them, not just you know showing old material. Well, you know, Amazon now is releasing feature films and online, you know, too. So yeah, it's you know the paradigm. You know. Netflix and Amazon are not television shows, but they're getting Emmys. Yeah. Does that say something? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's totally shift. It, it, it's a, I'm, you know, anybody can make a film now. If you, if you, you have a cell phone uh-huh. and you have a MacBook Pro, you can make a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just recently saw there was a, someone invited me to it. it there was a, um, a festival for movies made specifically on their cell phone, which I thought was very, was very bizarre. There's a whole festival for it. Well, totally different, man. It's just like a totally different world. Mm-hmm. Um, I was here when it first started, man, there was no internet and there was no cell phones, but to see the evolution and see what you can do now, the only thing stopping people from making movies are themselves because it's like, you know, you can do a webisode like, you know, Issa Rae, mm-hmm. uh, Awkward Dark Girls, and she has a big deal with HBO. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia started off as webisodes. It's been on for, how, 10 years now? Yeah. It's a totally different world. Mm-hmm. That, which do you get more out of uh, as an artist, uh, acting or directing? Or is it all kind of uh, the same for you? I still love acting, but directing, I, I, I get a voice, my own mm-hmm. voice. And that's rewarding, you know, my own mm-hmm. vision, my own voice. And that's what I love. Well, what are some of your projects that, um, that people might not know too much about that you, that you're proud of and you would like, you know, more people to, to, to see? Oh man. I don't know if there's somebody, some, a uh, deep cover, uh, with Lawrence Fishburne and, uh, Jeff Goldblum many years ago, Hoodlum, mm-hmm. with Tim Roth and Andy Garcia and Lawrence Fishburne uh, uh, created Equal, which I did a year, two years ago. Um, I love that film. And, um, it, you know, there are a number of them, you know, that I've done. Uh, some of them got recognition, some didn't. Mm-hmm. But I just love directing and producing, and I just love it. So, Yeah. I didn't ask, because when I mentioned you're going to come on, a lot of people asked about Menace to Society. And I saw that. Uh, uh oh! Uh oh! Uh oh! Don't say. I won't say. A lot of people uh, quoted the line, and then I watched a video where you said it is the most quoted line uh, that anyone says to you. So, 
what what do you think it is about menace to society that uh obviously when it came out it was big but that like it finds new audiences with new generations of of, of fans well i th- i think i think it it went it, it really looked at the black community in terms of its humanity you know we dismiss a lot of these kids we just throw them away like discard them but it's not really touch you into the soul and heart of these young people and I, I think that's, you know, one of the things, because, you know, young black men being killed and stuff, that has not gone away, you know? Mm-hmm. And the trauma in the neighborhoods have not gone away. So it's unfortunately still relevant, but I think that's one of the reasons that people just don't identify with it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what were the Hughes brothers like at the time? You know, because they're unexperienced, but, you know, they make this uh, iconic movie. Great collaborators. I mean, not only not only with with each other, but they were great collaborators with with the cast and crew. I mean, they're I mean they they they're they're really brilliant, um, and they also have a love for film. I mean, love for film. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's I mean that passion spreads all over. Yeah, and I also want to let people know because uh, you're on this season of uh, Black Lightning, so uh, that's pretty cool. Yes, it's a it's a good show, man. Thank you. I play um, Agent Ardell, and he's uh, like the guy who comes in and investigates what's happening. But Black Lightning, one of the first, if not the only, black action television show that I know. Of, you know. Yeah. For the superhero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What do you make of that? Of the boom of the superhero movies and TV shows. Well, I think escapism. You know, it's like you know people. You have a difficult life and um, a hard time, and someone um, gives you two hours to just go away, to, and you can be with Superman, Batman, whoever, and just forget about your troubles. I think you'll pay for that, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, uh, everybody, they can watch on that. Uh, your book's coming out. Uh, anything else you're working on currently? You seem like a very busy man. Yeah, I'm working on developing a, a film for. Um, um, foster care to, to deal with that topic, you know, and and try to give insight and help the foster care communities that, that are helping our kids and so on. So that's something I'm really involved in. Cool. And how can people uh, follow you online to see what you're, you're working on? Well, they can go to my website, you know, on the Bill Duke or uh, Instagram, realbillduke.com and uh, dot com. Um, you know, just I mean, I'm really online, uh, and I have uh, some people that deal with uh, the media things for me. So mm-hmm. I just like you know enjoy. I I, I don't, I'm not too much of a Facebook person, and I, um, because I'm pretty private. But I do try to utilize it for business. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming and talking to me today. It was, it was very cool, and I I'm looking forward to reading your book. Hey man, check it out. I hope you like it. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, man. Great question. Thank you. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. From ancient terrors to the search for modern-day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old-world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. we should have listened. The Tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming at night! Mostly! They're coming at night! Mostly!
This is Sophia Cassiola. And this is Michael J. Epstein. Of Blood of the Trivets. And you're listening to... Without Your Head. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Michelle Iantuano, writer and director of Livescream. How you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now, I actually heard about the movie from mutual friend uh, Michael Epstein... He said, like, you'd really, I'd really like this, and uh, it was very interesting. He saw it at a festival. And so I watched it, and it was, like, going in, I have to say, just the idea. I didn't think maybe it would be for me, but uh, I really dug it. So, for, first of all, let people know what it's about. Live Scream is a found footage horror feature that's basically a real-time Twitch stream. Uh, but instead of having fun with his followers, his followers start dying. Um, right. The game is some kind of haunted and and starts having some deadly consequences every time he loses a life. Uh, so it's it's a swift film. It's about 70 minutes. Um, tried to keep the tension pretty high. Tried to show off a lot of different horror games and types of horror games, especially ones that have been popular on YouTube and Twitch in the past four or five years, because um, that was that's kind of in my obsession that I poured into this film. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I can say without totally spoiling it. <laughs> right. So, uh, um, so are they, are they actual, uh, footage from other games? No, uh, I built all the games custom and unreal engine. Oh, wow. That must've taken a long time. It, it didn't. Um, okay. What but, uh, it, well, I mean, it took <laughs> a lot of hours. It did not take a lot of weeks because I crammed it all in about three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did. I did put a lot of hours into it. Luckily, I didn't have to model everything. Um, I purchased assets. So I was sort of building a set more than I was having to, you know, build this entire 3D environment with custom models and custom textures and stuff. I had all that available to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was building the levels and I was doing the programming and that sort of thing. Uh, but Unreal Engine's really intuitive and very easy to set things up in. So, um, the the hardest part, the, the most long-winded part, was whenever I had to figure out how to program something because I don't have any experience with C plus plus or anything. So I was using their blueprint system, which is kind of like a visual C plus plus. And yeah, every time I wanted any enemies to come at me, anytime I wanted a door to open, anytime I wanted to interact with the game, uh, mm-hmm. I had to program something. And that was when I had to hit YouTube and try to figure out how to do that sort of stuff. <laughs> Right. So uh, for the actor, is he see, does he see uh, the game while he's uh, acting or does that come in later? Uh, yeah, he had to react to the gameplay. Uh, he was also reacting to the chat. So pretty much everything that you see in the film, uh, aside from him, he had in front of him to react to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so is it like one long take? No, it was three. Um, he was capable of doing it in one take, but... Um, and basically, he ta- he walks off screen a couple times uh, yeah. through the film, and those were the places that we cut. Um, I just felt like his energy kind of dropped in the middle. Uh, so, you know, as it naturally would <laughs> when you're mm-hmm. doing a 70-minute take. Uh, so we, we just felt it was better for the movie to give him a little bit of a break and to allow him to regain his stamina and stuff. And, and for safety reasons, too, like not, you know, safety for him, but safety for 
the fact that we were shooting it in two days um, and we didn't have that much time. Uh, we wanted to add those sort of checkpoints to make sure that he had the freedom to make a mistake and we weren't going to reset all the way back to the beginning of the film. We would only reset to, you know, the, the 20 minute mark or the 50 minute mark instead of, you know, getting almost to the end and then making a mistake and having yeah. to start all the way over again. Uh, uh-huh. so, yeah. Even, pressure. even from the beginning, even before I knew that, um, even before I cast anybody, I, I wrote those checkpoints into the script just in case. Mm-hmm. How, how about casting a gunner uh, for the role? Cause it's primarily one person, so it would have to be very important that that person is, is good for the movie. Yeah, um, it was definitely a linchpin. I wanted somebody who could be very natural, and that's one of Gunner's strengths, is that there's about 20% improv on top of my script, and I think most people can't tell where the script ends and the improv begins, that he's very good at delivering the lines and the improv very seamlessly, and, and drawing you in and being charismatic and being able to carry the parts of the film that are maybe less um, exciting, I guess. Like there's, there's some emotional points in the film that are more just conversations. Um, There's the first 10 or 15 minutes of the film when like nobody's dying and there's not any visible stakes. Uh, I needed to make sure that I could have an actor who could immediately draw the audience in and make you want to watch him. Uh, and that was Gunner, and that was immediately apparent with Gunner. So um, it was it was a it was a blessed thing that I was able to uh, to have him around. And he was only three hours away from me, so it wasn't that much to to bring him in for the weekend to shoot. Mm-hmm. Now you said uh, you've been obsessed with uh, with Twitch. Now uh, is it primarily horror games or just Twitch in general? It's mostly YouTube, actually. Okay. Um, I've I've watched Let's Plays a lot on YouTube, and I would say I don't necessarily stick with the genre as much as I stick with people. Um, Markiplier is sort of the first one. Well, I guess actually Michael Jones' Rage Quit was probably the first one. Um, Markiplier as well, of course. Recently, I've been into Jacksepticeye. Um, I followed Michael Jones to Achievement Hunter, so I watched them a lot. And they do horror games for sure, but they do a lot of things like Achievement Hunter does a lot of GTA stuff. They do a lot of platformers, um, a lot of group stuff. And Mark does a lot of indie games of lots of variety. Jack does more like AAA stuff. So he did like the new Spider-Man game. Um, So they do a variety of things because I think the thing about watching these guys play is it's really never about the games. It's always about the people. It's always about... Um, you know, feeling like you have this almost relationship with these people that you've grown to like them as entertainers. And there's a reason that I'm subscribed to them and I go to them for their games versus just typing in, you know, Alien Isolation into YouTube and, you know, looking at the first five guys that show up, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's it for me um, in that aspect. But Mar- Mark play- has played a lot of indie horror games, and that's really what made him famous was Five Nights at Freddy's and Amnesia. And um, I watch his Alien Isolation play through every Halloween. So, <laughs> Well, along those lines, and um, the movie itself then uh, makes a lot of sense because people who follow, like yourself, follow uh, different people play the games, you're emotionally attached to them. So then you care about you know what happens to this person in the movie. Yeah, that was really important um, because Gunner is the only one you really see on screen. Uh, everybody who, um, everybody else is pretty much just text in the chat. 
so I couldn't just make them, you know, sort of just, I, I had to make them individuals. I had to make them people that you would care about. Um, because I'm not really a fan of, um, I, I think there's kind of two different types of horror movies, particularly when you get to slashers. And I, I kind of do consider this a slasher. You have slashers where you're not really supposed to care about the characters. It's really more about the kills, right? You want to see the gore. You want to see the the death and the mayhem. And then there's slashers where you're really invested in the characters and you enjoy it from an ensemble point and you almost don't want to see them die. Uh, because Live Scream doesn't have a lot of on-screen kills, I definitely couldn't go for the first, you know, it's really not about the spectacle and the gore. I had to go with the second one where... It's more about the tension and the terror and the threat of death upon these characters that you're supposed to care about. Um, so yeah, that's I, I was really inspired by um, Scream. I think I followed Scream's plot formula as an outline when I was writing the script for Live Scream. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting to get like uh, someone invested in someone that is a chat, like in the chat room that you don't even see, and so you have to rely on uh, on Gunner. I think selling how. Uh, interested he is you know in in that person and their well-being yeah and i think he did a a good job of that um and and i think that there there are characters in the movie who maybe you're not supposed to like (laughs) and uh i think he he really dove into that as well the the sort of antagonism with certain characters uh because you know not not all people in the chat are always friendly (laughs) this is not a people that are friendly um and that's I, I guess we've all been trolled or you know mm-hmm. attacked by an anonymous person on the internet at some point so um i just sort of told him to go with that you know <laughs> yeah now are you yourself a big are you a big gamer besides you know watching the games um yeah i would say so i i definitely watch them more than i play them just because i don't really have the time um you know i don't watch television so pretty much my my tv at the end of the day is the, the watching these gameplays um but i i have enjoyed a lot of things this year i've played near automata which is incredible i love a way out fallout 4 is probably my favorite game and i'm really excited about fallout 76 um my summer obsession has been detroit become human <laughs> so i like a lot of story-based games um i don't typically go for the open world uh craft based games like fallout 4 that's kind of an anomaly in my um appreciation but at the same time i don't know if i need more games in my life that i could throw 600 hours into so um you know fallout gets to be that for me but nothing else like Uh I, i cannot even allow any of that into my life so what was your first gaming experience uh for me, I go back to like Atari 2600, but uh, what was like your first gaming system? I started gaming really late. Um, I'm 26 now, and I was probably 20 or 21 before I really got my first gaming system and started gaming. And it was probably even after that. I mean, I think it was after college. Um, I won a PS4, or I won a PlayStation 3 at work. I worked in McAllister's Deli in college, and at a Christmas party, they were doing giveaways for the employees, and I won a PS3, and at the time, I was like, great, a Blu-ray player, you know? Like, I had no <laughs> desire to use it for gaming, and my uh, my boyfriend was like, come on, like, let's get you some games for this, because he grew up with Nintendo, and he grew up with sure. Zelda, and, you know, all Smash Brothers and all that other stuff. And, oh, well, yeah, I guess he grew up with Atari, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, 
so I ended up um, buying a couple games for it. And after college, I started watching games like, you know, Markiplier and stuff. And that kind of got me more interested in like, okay, like I like this game he's playing. Maybe I want to go and try to play that or whatever. Um, so I think the first game that kind of changed things for me uh, and made me go kind of headfirst into gaming and start like going to GameStop more and collecting more uh, was Heavy Rain which again is a story-based game. It's kind of like an interactive David Fincher movie and it's a murder mystery. And I played it all nine hours in one sitting because I just had to know who the origami killer was. (laughs) And I had all my theories and it was just, it was so gripping. And I didn't know that games could be that. I grew up thinking that Halo was basically what a video game was, that Mm -hmm. all video games were Halo. And if I didn't like Halo, then I didn't like video games. And this is true of like during the early Xbox era, you know, in when I was in high school, like 2006, 2007, that kind of was the big type of game. You didn't have as many story based games. Heck, you didn't even have Uncharted at that time um, or Assassin's Creed. Like it it really was just first person shooters. but in the past 10 years, you've really seen this renaissance of just innovation in the gaming industry. And it's it's become so much more mainstream than it was. And yeah, you, you have people like me who I still don't like first-person shooters. I, Wolfenstein is the only first-person shooter that I enjoy. I You still can't make me play Halo or Destiny or any of that. But there's, you know, there's Fallout, there's Heavy Rain, there's... I even enjoy the Assassin's Creed games sometimes. Um, there's so much and so much variety that I'm kind of convinced now that there's a, a game that anybody, anybody has like a game that they would enjoy. Even if you can't just say, I don't like video games anymore. It's kind of like saying, I don't like movies. Like that's a really sweeping statement that is almost completely untrue for almost anybody. Um, I, I believe that I could find the right video game for pretty much everyone, <laughs> even like my, my grandma, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I haven't played video games actually since N64, so it's quite a while ago. But a lot of it is I sometimes I'll think about buying a new system. I'm way way out of the loop, but uh, I'm always afraid that I'll spend too much time on it and then, then I won't have time to do other things. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to pick your battles. For me, it's like I, I know I don't watch television, so that's not a vice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can kind of replace television, I think, with gaming. But I think if somebody's into like television and movies and gaming, like right. one of them has to go, right? <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of movies, so yeah, that would it would yeah, I don't have time for anything. <laughs> so, um, where did the idea come from to do a horror movie based uh, in uh, the video game world? Um, I would say the thing that got the wheels turning initially was that last summer I was asked to do a short film in a local anthology project. So at the time, I was looking for ideas that were simple, ideas that were cheap, that could only have, you know, one or two actors in them. And uh, Live Scream is one of the ideas that came to me when I was watching a Let's Play one day. And I thought to myself, you know, if these guys can make a feature length video about them playing, you know, Uno or whatever, I can make a feature length actual feature film about, you know, in this format. So um, I held on to that idea because I didn't think it would work for the anthology for a few different reasons. And I also, at the time, was like, I I wanted to make a feature. It it was kind of on my bucket list. I knew that I needed to do it in the immediate future. 
So um, that was about six months of just kind of letting it sit in the back of my mind and knowing that like I had this video game feature that I wanted to make. I really just had to get the plot cracked. Um, and once I did, once I figured out what the plot was going to be and what the the level progression and stuff of it was going to be and what the movie was actually going to be about, um, I kind of just went full speed into it and started tinkering and Unreal. And actually, it's kind of funny because I started working on the film. I started casting it. I even started kind of asking for money for it. I didn't do a big crowdfunding campaign, but I did a little bit of a campaign where basically if you donated $3 towards my film festival submission fees fund, uh, I would put your username in the chat. Mm-hmm. So I had a few people take me up on that. And so I started doing that before I even started working an Unreal Engine to figure out if I could even do the games. And in hindsight, it's like, why did I do that? <laughs> because it's like, I'm very careful about things and making sure that if I start a project and actually announce it and cast it and, and promise people things, that I can deliver it. And even though I had tinkered in Unreal before, you know, I, I had about 15 hours of experience in the engine. I didn't look on the marketplace to know that I had all the assets I needed. I didn't know for sure that I could program any of the things that I had written in the script. It really was just, I programmed and designed and worked in the engine and I brute forced my way through it because if there was something I absolutely could not do, I changed it. Um, I didn't have to do that too many times, but yeah, it was just like every time I hit a, a, a problem or something I had to troubleshoot, I just, I fought it and brute forced my way through making nine games in a way that should not have been possible. But thank God, because I, I'm glad I didn't have to give anybody their money back or <laughs> you cancel a project, right? Right, right. Uh, now you have the experience you can go and make a video game. And I'm thinking about it. Um, I, I want to do that. Um, I When I made Octopunk Media, I had it in the back of my mind that it's it's media for a reason, you know, that it's not just films. It's has the potential to be books and games and graphic novels or what have you. And um, I really think that because gaming is now such a big part of my identity and people are going to associate me with gaming so much now because of this film, uh, it's a good opportunity to maybe explore that more. Because if there is anything that Livescream taught me, it's that, yeah, with gaming, you really can just keep pushing and pushing and pushing until the game works. <laughs> and there's a lot of support out there uh, for Unreal Engine, and there's a big community for it. Um, and it's, you know, it's a free engine too, which is really helpful and affordable. So, uh, yeah, I have some ideas for some games that I definitely want to pursue, but it probably will be a couple years before any of that's done. Yeah. So uh, you're in the gaming. Uh, are you also into horror movies? Well, I know uh, you don't watch TV. But. I would say, yeah. I, I mean, I'm definitely into movies. As a filmmaker, it's kind of hard not to be. Um, I, I would say I am not really that... Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Uh, wizened, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't have the best encyclopedic knowledge of... Uh, horror movies and stuff like I, I'm going to Nightmares this week and Maniac is the opening film and I had never even heard of that film honestly oh, <laughs> before, 
And I'm sure, like, most horror fans are like, just pose her chick. Like, she doesn't know anything because I, like, I, and I'm just kind of like, sounds cool, but it's from the 80s. And I was born in 1992. And, you know, it's just, it's before my time. It's a little obscure. Um, and there's a lot of that. Um, I didn't even really see Nightmare on Elm Street until, I think, last year. So I'm kind of catching up because much like my childhood not really involving gaming, my childhood also did not involve horror movies in any way. So basically every Halloween for the last like five years, I've been kind of catching up on uh, on the history of horror right, <laughs> for the last right. 40 years or 50 years of you know, <laughs> horror movies uh, a little bit at a time. So I really do enjoy horror movies, but I... I wouldn't say I'm like a hardcore horror fan um, sure. because I, I'm just not, you know, I'm not really that knowledgeable and my yeah. taste kind of broad. <laughs> so what did you do as a kid? If you did video game or watch horror movies? <laughs> I wrote a lot and especially right. fan fiction. <laughs> I wrote a lot of heroes fan fiction. Um, I've been writing since I was six. So that was, I think I did like original stuff from age six to like 14 and then when I was 14 is when I got into fandom. So I was writing a lot of fanfic and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, stay, I stayed inside and wrote a lot. But um, I did a lot of film stuff, too. I was involved in my school news show and, and that sort of thing, broadcast journalism. So that gave me access to cameras. And I was always asking for cameras for Christmas and stuff. Every two or three years, I would ask for... Uh, my first one was like a high 8 camera. And then I thought the quality on that kind of sucked. So I think in 2007, I asked for a mini DV camera. <laughs> so that was an upgrade, you know. Uh -huh. And then I went to college, and then all of a sudden SD cards became a thing, and all filmmakers started using DSLRs, and it all went digital and HD and stuff. And uh, two years ago, when I got back into filmmaking and bought my first DSLR, I had to completely relearn cinematography because... You know, it's it's apples and oranges to how I grew up where, you know, you'd shoot something on mini DV tape and then sit there with your firewire, you know, plugged into your laptop and capture the tape in real time and, you know, your capture software or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm glad for the advancement. But at the same time, I did have to I, I kind of felt like I was taking it on for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the uh, what has the festival scene been like so far? It's been really fantastic, um, and I'm super excited about Nightmares um, because I think it's probably the biggest one that I'll be going to, probably at all, um, but definitely up to this point. Uh, I've been to Genre Blast. I've been to Crimson Screen. I went to Women in Horror, although I didn't go with Live Scream. I went with a, a different film for that, but I'm still you know, glad I got to experience uh, going to that festival. And it's really like this family reunion every time you go um you know you meet these new people and and you're able to introduce the film to a new audience every time but every time there's still that that core of like you know a dozen or two dozen people who are your your friends and your supporters and you're there to support each other's films and you know you can have a beer with them and you know count on that every night and i think that's the absolute best part and i'm glad that i was able to kind of be on the festival circuit a little bit last year um, and at least be on Facebook with these people last year to kind of get to know everybody before live scream came out. 
so that when it did premiere at Crimson this year, it had a lot of support and it had a lot of people caring and, and giving me um, nice feedback about it because I've already been introduced to a lot of people. Um, but it, it has definitely gotten more crazy in the past, I guess, five months since the movie premiered that the number of people I have added to my Facebook friends list is probably innumerable at this point because I've just met so many people and seen so much cool work. And it's almost hard to keep track of, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually just started doing uh, festivals uh, the beginning of this year, and it's a great place to network. Uh, you know, with other filmmakers, other people who do do whatever. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm one of those people who's like, I don't really like the word networking, you know, but um, it's definitely a good place to meet like-minded people and to mm-hmm. see work that you really wouldn't see anywhere else. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really excited that I've been able to see a couple films this year that were just a studio like never would have made them and they were fantastic. Um, and the two that really come to mind are the Theta girl and butterfly kisses. Um, just both really, really amazing films that captured me from just beginning to end and have stuck with me, you know, for, for the months after. Um, and I think that, I would never get to see those like in a normal theater and, and being able to talk to those filmmakers about the process of like, how did this idea come to you? And how did you get the funding? And how'd you only, how'd you make this movie for only $14,000? You had a cop car chase in it, you know, uh-huh. and just like picking apart like the little gorilla tips and stuff um, from other filmmakers. Like that's, that's really, really cool. Um, I love the Q and A's at any film festival and it's, it's really the best part to me aside mm-hmm. from, movies is just like figuring out how they did it mm-hmm. so what was the experience like to watch your movie with an audience especially for the first time the first time i was really yeah. nervous because um, i i didn't have any press or any reviews or anything like literally the only people who had seen the film up to that point were the cast and crew and uh, tommy and robbie i suppose who um were the directors of crimson but they weren't telling me what they felt about it <laughs> to that point, you know, they were paying it real cool. So I, I had no idea, particularly because, um, you know, Crimson is here in Charleston. It's my local festival. They're very supportive of local filmmakers. So, you know, I had that idea in the back of my mind of like, you know, it has to be good enough to get into Crimson, especially as a feature. But at the same time, I know they want to support me and stuff because I'm local. So I don't know if it's good. Like I have no clue or maybe it's just okay. Maybe some parts of it people will like, but some parts people will hate it. Just absolutely no context of whether it was going to land, whether it was going to have the emotional resonance that I wanted to have, whether people would be able to watch it for more than five minutes. And when the credits rolled for the first time and they, they clapped and like they kind of kept clapping and I was kind of like guys you're missing the really cool credit song that Austin like composed (laughs) and then I walked up there and I got my first feedback um from Mike Lombardo who's there and his white doomsday crew and they were just so supportive and then like throughout the weekend people came up to me like in the line for the bathroom and like other places and they told me that they enjoyed the film I was like holy crap, like, this is this is way better than I expected. And it's it's gotten easier to sit and watch it with an audience now because I've, I've kind of 
come to see a pattern in how audiences respond, and it seems like it's pretty consistent. Um, but I don't think I've gotten used to yet the hearing the feedback from people because it's it's like it's the first time every time. You know, every time somebody tells me that they enjoyed it or tells me that they resonated with a certain part or that they recognized an homage to one of the video games that is homaged in the in the film um it that is still really really new to me <laughs> and, and as it's and with the press as well every time you know um a journalist takes it on or um, a podcaster takes it on and, and says that they liked it i mean it's that never gets old yeah there's a nice exchange between uh, the main character and uh, I don't give too much away about the movie, but it's near the end. And it's kind of about, uh, you know, why someone would uh, play the games, you know, stream it and why someone follows it. And uh, like I've had similar conversations, with people listen to the podcast. So it was uh, it's an emotional scene between just a guy on camera and someone in the chat room, which I thought was uh, done very well. Thank you. Yeah, it was really important um, to make the emotional core of the movie, I think, related to that, because I, I hear it all the time of uh, particularly, um, you know, people who are not millennials or Gen Z. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't understand, like, why would you watch people play video games? They just don't understand why, why the youths are into this. And uh, and of course, there's some millennials who feel the same way. Um, and and. What I wanted kind of to show with the film is like, this is why. is this, It's about the community. It's about the relationship between the person playing and the, and the community and the fans. That it's, it's not really about the game. Um, and so I thought that was a good place, a good starting place for what I wanted the emotional part of the movie to come from. Uh, and I think one of the best compliments that I get is from these dads who come up to me and say, look, I don't watch YouTube or any of this crap, but, like, my, my kid does. They watch it all the time. Like, my 8-year-old or my 14-year-old, like, this is all they watch, and I never understood why, but now I kind of do. And that is just, like, that's all I really wanted. <laughs> like, I just, I wanted people to kind of connect to this... I mean, I, I hesitate to even call it a subculture when, you know, Markiplier has 20 million subscribers. Like, that's that's a pretty big subculture. That's almost a culture in itself. That's that's a generation right there. Um, and, and yeah, I think that it has validity. It, it's a valid form of entertainment, and it's a valid form of community. And, and what these guys do isn't just, you know, crap. It's not just, you know, yelling at video games and... Um, that there is something deeper there. And I think that was important to separate live scream from the type of movie that a studio would have made. Um, I think that if a bigger studio was just trying to like cash in on, Hey, these, you know, Markiplier people are really famous now and let's make a movie about that. I feel like it would have been more cynical and I didn't want it to be presented that way. I, as a member of that community myself, I really wanted to have, an earnestness about it that uh, was not cynical. So, uh, where is Nightmares? Nightmares is in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. So, uh, uh, from there, um, do you know what other festivals it it'll play at? It'll be in the Rendezvous Scarefest, which is the week, the first weekend of November, in Amelia Island, Florida. 
That weekend, it'll also be in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for the Lancaster Shorts Festival. It's a special um, feature screening out of competition. Uh, it'll be feature screening out of competition at the Stranger Days Film Festival in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think that's like November 18th-ish. It's like the week before Thanksgiving. Um, and I think it's also going to be at Louisville Supercon in Louisville, Kentucky, the first, the weekend after Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, do you know where live scream will go after the uh, festival run or do, don't you know yet? I do not have news on distribution. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Uh, where can you follow, follow live scream? Uh, live screams on Facebook at facebook.com slash live scream film. But I really do encourage people to go to the Octopunk media site instead. Um, that's facebook.com slash Octopunk media. I do a monthly show called Octopunk live where I recap, um, I do fl- festival vlogs. I do updated screenings of live scream, but most importantly for the audience, I do giveaways of video game steam keys and merch and all sorts of other stuff. So it's kind of just a way to keep people updated on where the film is at, what new stuff I'm working on um, that I I'm pretty on brand. You know, it's kind of like if you like one thing I do, you'll probably like the other stuff. So it's not like, hey, you know, I like live screen, but I don't care about that romantic comedy you're doing. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on stuff that's gaming related, horror related, genre related. So uh, it all kind of ties in. Um, and then I'm doing a couple like live screen media tie-ins too that are outside of the film itself that people might be interested in. So that's facebook.com slash Octopunk Media. All right, very cool. And uh, what are you working on? Well, uh, after Genre Blast, I, I had such a good response and I had such good conversations with people that uh, I'm really wanting to dive into a sequel to live scream now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just got to get the script for that figured out and see if I can maybe get a grant from Epic Games, who um, they make Unreal Engine, and they have a grant program for people who are working on projects using the engine. So that's kind of going to be my first stop to trying to, uh, you know, m- maybe get 50 grand out of that. Uh-huh. We'll see. Uh, and then my husband and I are currently early, early development for another feature uh, that would be a normal feature, not found footage. Uh, and my, maybe not even really horror, more like fantasy music driven. And it's kind of like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And it revolves around a synthesizer. So uh, <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking a lot about that lately. And we might be trying to get a short, um, maybe like filming like one scene of the feature and then submitting it as a short and trying to drum up some interest uh, for that next year. Mm-hmm. And, but the, the making of the feature would probably be a while off cause it's, it, we we want to go pretty big with it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you talking to me. It's been a lot of fun and I dug the movie. Thank you. I, I love having, I, I love going to places and talking about it. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. And I'm going to join your group. Oh, thank you. All right. If you let me, yeah.
This is Billy Pond, a.k.a. Bloody Bill, out here in West Texas, and you're listening to Without Your Head on withoutyourhead.com. And you know, I know something about Without Your Head, because that's what we do on Circus of the Dead. We make love to heads. So uh, if you want to be without your head, you should tune in and listen. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Christopher Wells, writer, director, producer of The Luring. How you guys, How you doing? Doing really good. Really good. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here. So for people not aware yet, can you tell them what The Luring is about? Sure. Uh, the Luring is about a man who tries to recover a lost memory by returning to his family's vacation house located in Vermont, where an unspeakable act took place, leaving him institutionalized as a child. So That's where my elevator it... pitch. <laughs> right. You don't want to give away too much of it. So uh, where, did, where did this idea come from? Uh, well, my, we, we used to actually have a vacation house up in Vermont. And when my stepfather died, my mom couldn't afford the house anymore. So she came to me and she said, look, you know, I have to put the house up for sale. And I, I asked her if I could shoot a film there. And she said she agreed. So basically, I wrote a script to what I had available to me. Um, but I, I also had two short scripts that I wrote prior to that that I put into the film as well. And they, they acted as the beginning and the end of the film. Um, and so, it, you know, just everything kind of came together and having a deadline because my mom, she had to sell the house. So we were shooting and then a week after we wrapped, uh, they did a walkthrough or actually three days after we wrapped, they did a walkthrough and the house was sold. So, I mean, it was, and it was during mud season in Vermont, which is like, I'm, I'm, it's just incredible how we pulled it off, but, but we did. Yeah. So what was it about the house inspired the story? Well, it was available, (laughs) but, um, in in all honesty, uh, the house didn't have any lights, uh, hanging from the ceiling. So there were a lot of lamps and what that causes is a lot of shadows. So every time when I go up there, it wasn't a creepy house at all, but just when it got dark or at night, uh, you know, we'd have the lights on, you know, with these lamps. And I always thought just creatively, how cool would it be to write a horror film up here, even though there was, there's nothing horror or anything bad that happened in you know, my life, you know, going up mm-hmm. there for years since 1989. Um, but I just, you know, just as, as a visual person, I just saw, saw what the possibilities, uh, you know, I, what I could come up with. And um, when the opportunity arose, I just kind of went with that deep feeling and I, and I just love horror and I, and I, you know, I could have done a romantic comedy or whatever, but for independent filmmakers or ultra low budget filmmakers uh, like myself, uh, horror is is a really good genre to to you know do um, because with, with romantic comedies you kind of need to name talent and all that stuff. So I again I just try to stay with what I had available and what I thought would be a success. And also being that I love horror, I, I I've always wanted to do a horror film. So kind of everything kind of came together. Well, was that hard to get it written and filmed uh, in that in that time frame? Yes, <laughs> I mean, it was not easy um, because, yeah, I mean, raising money, even if it's an, an ultra low budget film, you're still asking people to invest in your film, and um, so it wasn't easy because I was doing both. I was um, Bri- Brian Berg is my co-producer, 
And uh, he was more or less the main guy raising money, and I was more of the creative. But I still had to do a lot of stuff. I mean, I still had to produce the film. I had to raise money and all that stuff. There were days that we didn't think that we could raise the money. There were days that I was like, okay, you know, I, I guess it's not happening. And then the very next day, all of a sudden, we had an investor. I mean, it was like a roller coaster, and I don't recommend it to a lot of people. But, but having a deadline is actually the best thing for artists because if you don't have a deadline, you, it's easy to just kind of push it off because you're, you know, uh-huh. you're working for yourself, and you can always say, oh, I'll do it later. I'll work on the script later. But, but knowing that, you know, we had this opportunity, I, I just couldn't pass it up. I couldn't screw this up. So it, 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 it worked for my benefit having the, the, the deadline, but raising money and all that stuff was, was definitely hard. But um, what we did was we shot the first scene of the film and we put $10,000 for that. We sent it, we showed that to all these possible investors and they liked what we were doing. And then that's how we raised the most, you know, all the money uh, from that. Mm -hmm. So we were able to kind of prove to the investors, Hey, we know what we're doing. Uh, This is what the film is going to look like. And so after that, that kind of made it a lot easier for us. Yeah. So how long had you known Brian? Uh, well, I met him probably about, it was about a year before we started working together. We actually met playing football at, um, prospect park. And there's a really b- bunch of really great guys that I, that I play flag football. And, uh, he kind of saw some of the short films that I've done in the past. He, he liked them and, uh, everything kind of just came together. And, and as we were kind of talking about films and whatnot, then my mom came to me and said, look, you know, I have to sell the house. And, and then I was talking to Brian about that. And he said, look, if, if you're really serious about this, I could help you raise money for this. Mm-hmm. And just one thing led to another. And, and we just kind of checked off the, the, uh, you know, the tax, the, the, the things that we had to do. Uh, and uh, it just kind of came together. So, yeah. I, so yeah, about like a year before we started working together and, you know, he's, he's, I, you know, I think he's a great guy, really good, good uh friend of mine now and um you know we've been through a lot (laughs) yeah not easy doing a film Mm -hmm. so was um uh, the memory part of the story is that something that uh interested you before you wrote this or was it something like you looked into when you're thinking of a story uh a combination of of both i mean i've always had um garrett the the protagonist of of the luring um he's got disassociative amnesia and I don't know where I was, but someone was actually talking about that. And I always thought that that was sort of fascinating that something, if something traumatic happens to you, you can forget that, that part of your life. And Mm -hmm. this happens to, you know, a few people that have had, you know, obviously negative things happen to them. And uh, so as a writer, I just thought, well, let me just explore that. Let me kind of see where I can go with that. Um, And it it just kind of, kind of came out of me um it also like i said before i had two short scripts written and the beginning and the end of the film which i at the time i didn't know that it was going to be that um but then as i started developing this character and i was looking at uh you know these other two short films i was like all right you know i could kind of see an outline and it sort of just kind of wrote itself i know when people say that some other people like oh god like how 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 does a script write itself i just sort of it's sort of like with the stream of consciousness and anytime that i felt that i was going somewhere that was familiar or that i'd seen before i decided 
to not go that way. I didn't, I didn't want this film to be predictable or, you know, something that, you know, someone can predict the whole film. I, I just, I wanted to kind of surprise my audience. I wanted to have foreshadowing. I wanted to have elements that for me, I'm sort of seeing that's lacking in psychological or horror films that, that, that I see nowadays. And there's still a lot of great horror films out there nowadays, but I, I just, sometimes I'm just, I, I don't want to predict the film. And mm-hmm. so it just sort of kind of came out of me and I just sort of had certain guidelines of what I wanted and what I didn't want. And I got the approval of, of Brian and other people that were working on the film at that time in pre-production uh, and, you know, got some really great feedback and, and uh, yeah, it's, I still can't believe that, that it happened because it's, it's been such a long road and, you know, an uphill battle, but you know, we're, we're, we're doing it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I always think that helps repeat viewing um, with foreshadowing and different kind of hidden things. Cause uh, exactly. then you could watch it again as a whole different movie, looking for those, you know, looking for things you didn't notice the first time you watched oh, it. Totally. Yeah, that that's exactly what what I wanted. I I, I love little tiny treasures, and and th- there are certain films that I like to watch that I'm like, holy shit! I've been watching this movie for years, and I I'm still learning something about it, and and it's not by mistake, and and that's something that I definitely wanted to to, to have uh, happen with with our audience. Um, I just I think it gives the film longevity. I think it gives it. It, it just makes the film better. Um, and obviously you can't, you have to be careful because some things are going to be very, very subtle and some things maybe not so much, but I never wanted to spoon feed the audience. And I think with psychological thrillers, that sort of lends itself for that where in horror, you, you know, you could be very slasher based or whatever. There's different kind of sub genres in, in horror, but psychological thrillers are tend to be, or should be uh, more cerebral. So for me, I wanted to, um, you know, take, take notice of that audience. And, and that's the kind of film that I want to see that, that has subtleties to it, that after, you know, the third, fourth, fifth time I'm watching, I'm still seeing something new. And there's definitely mm-hmm. a lot of those subtleties sprinkled out th- throughout the whole entire film. Mm-hmm. What were some of the movies that, uh, that, that you liked and made you want to become a, a movie maker? Oh God. I mean, when I was growing up, I used to watch tales from the dark side. Um, and, and they would, uh, then I'd watch all these horror films like the shining Halloween, um, Rosemary's baby and, um, Amityville horror. Uh, there, there, there's so many that inspired me that, that I, I used to also watch Elvira. Remember when she used to oh, yeah. uh, do the intros <laughs> of, of the commercials? I mean, I just, uh-huh. even like cheesy black and white horror films. Like I, I just love the genre and I just, I just, uh, I've always been fascinated by it and I, and I'm, I'm constantly watching horror movies and, um, I know my girlfriend kind of wishes that I didn't watch so much horror, but it's just, they're just great. They're just so much fun. So it's been, it's been like a, a bunch of films that sort of inspired me, but just as a kid, when you're watching horror, you just sort of feel like you're watching something that you're not really supposed to be watching. And kind of that taboo or the, you know, breaking the rules a little bit, always sort of, I like that. And, uh, with horror, you know, you're, you're able to do that. You're, you're writing these characters that are, are evil. And that's kind of, it's fun because it's, it's not being safe. You, you know, I mean, uh, 
especially nowadays where people can be easily offended. It's, it's, you know, hard, you know, you you can offend people because, you you know, people die and they, they get Uh killed. And, you know, so it's kind of, uh, it's like, it could be a taboo, um, uh, thing, but yeah, I've, I've always just, even like with horror comics, you know, back in the day, reading these horror comics, I've, I've always was drawn to that, that, that space. Yeah. Yeah, I've just been suspended for thirty days off Facebook, so I know people are very, very easily offended today. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I don't. I'm hoping that it doesn't influence. Well, I mean, sure, it is influencing Hollywood, but um, with, with independent filmmakers, artists that are making films, I, I I hope you know people aren't afraid to, uh, you know, pursue their art, pursue their voice because. Mm-hmm. I think that people should be, you know, so what if people get offended? So what, you know, when I was a kid, we got offended all the time. You know, we, we, we grew up as adults. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't, we, we weren't hurt by it. We, we just, and you move on. And um, yeah, but I know a few people that got kicked off Facebook and I, I can't for, for things that are just so not even offensive. And it's just, uh-huh. yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to do like uh, especially horror genre where, it's there's something in it that does uh, affect you on some level, you know, either offended or you feel, uh, uh, you know, weirded out or, or uh, something like that. Uh, otherwise, you know, what are you really making? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to, it's kind of like comedy, horror and comedy are, are kind of, there's a parallel there because you're always kind of uh-huh. pushing the edge. You're always kind of seeing, okay, what can I do? And, and, and what's, what's the, where's the line and, and how can I cross over it? And when I was writing the script, I sent it to uh, Amanda, who um, is our director of photography. And there, at the time, there was a scene in there that I'm glad that she kind of told me, hey, do you really want to have this scene in there? And uh, she did it very graciously. And, and I was glad that, that she said something because it, it, sometimes when you're making a film, you, you, cre- you create a language. And some, some filmmakers if you're smart and you send your script out to people that give you an honest opinion, you, you keep this film within that language. And, and with this particular scene, it didn't follow the rest of the film. It was speaking a, like a different language and it, it kind of like went off the rails a little bit. And I'm glad that she identified that because sometimes you kind of need someone from the outside to say, Hey, look, you know, this is good over here, but over here, may, you know, maybe not so much. And that that scene definitely would have been offensive because it wasn't it wasn't following suit with the rest of the film. If if, mm-hmm. if I were doing like a slasher film, okay, fine. But all of a sudden, I had this like slasher kind of element with more of a psychological, and it just didn't it just kind of didn't fit. Yeah. And I you know and I, and I I find the whole process the creative process interesting because you know, you're, you're, you're building and you're trying, you're trying different things. It's like a comedian. They're trying different jokes to see what works with, with mm-hmm. writing a script. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're giving it to people that you trust and you're seeing, okay, well, what sticks and what doesn't. And, and that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. When voice just said there about having someone on the outside to, to, to look at it, I always think about that. Like, uh, like if you were to edit your own thing or because, I would think some of it, like you, you watch and you remember like filming it and you kind of, ha- you, you might be attached to it because of the experience as opposed to if it really fits in the story you're trying to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's just when you're in it, 
and you're writing it, you're so involved with it that sometimes you don't, you just can't look at it with fresh eyes. You try to be objective, but it, and to really be objective is someone that's not writing it. And they, they have a totally different perspective. I even gave this script to people that I knew didn't even like me. And so I knew that they were going to, they were going to try to kind of knock me down a little bit mm-hmm. and that's fine. I mean, that, you know, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm kind of uh, used to, you know, straight talk. And, um, and they were very helpful because they, they picked apart certain things that I did need to work on scenes that I did need to maybe kind of, you know, whatever, maybe shorten it or, or explain better or, or whatever it might be. And sometimes being an artist, you're very fragile, but you also grow very thick skin because you're constantly getting other people's opinions and you have to just be able to understand well, who's giving me constructive criticism and who's just trying to kick me in the nuts, you know, <laughs> so it, but that process is, it's, it, no matter what, it's not easy, but it's, but it's, it's, you know, it makes you a better artist because mm-hmm. what, once it, once your film goes out into the world, people are going to criticize it. I mean, even mm-hmm. when Kubrick came out with the shining that critics were saying that it was the worst film ever made. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one. So it's, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> so what was it like to cast the movie, especially, you know, uh, since you have like a, a time frame? Well, it was, we, we, we did it at Shetler studios in Manhattan and uh, Mary, uh, McGloon was, was our casting director and she was great. Um, it was a lot of work, but we, we saw a lot of great actors and with, with casting, you just have to make sure that they're right for the part. And, uh, I thought we nailed it. Uh, the, the, the cast that we, that we uh, got were, they're so, they were so enthusiastic. Everyone came prepared. Everyone knew their lines. I mean, it, everyone was so professional. And the, the process was actually a lot of fun. I mean, it's not fun to not call people back because, you know, you feel bad. These people mm-hmm. take time out of their day and they, you know, they're performing in front of you. But, you know, everyone knows that it's not because they're not good actors. It's just you know, they may not be right for the part. And um, but it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, it was a lot of work, obviously, but a lot of fun. And um, yeah, it was just uh you know, seeing the film now and, and, uh, obviously, you know, some of the, the, the cast I've, I'm, you know, I've, we have a friendship now and just to kind of see where it came, like I was actually looking at some old, uh, photos of their headshots and like, like, wow, like I, I know these people so well now and looking back, it's, it, it was definitely a process, but yeah, it was cool. Uh, how about working with, uh, with a young actor? Well, working with kids is uh, could be challenging because their attention span could kind of be a little bit all over the place. But um, the kids that worked with us were were great. Um, they all had a really good sense of humor. Again, they were all professional. They knew their lines. They they, they knew what they were doing. I mean, I, I wasn't that smart when I was a kid, and I was I was really impressed. I mean, I, I was really impressed how every single actor, every one of them were, everyone was prepared and, and knew their, what to do, when to talk, when, you know, when to kind of get out of the way. I mean, they, they really, they really were very helpful. The funny thing was, is that with the agents, because when you're doing an ultra low budget film, you send up, you send the actor or their agent, um, a form and, um, and you basically are telling them, Hey, you know, this is what we're offering. And, 
every time, every time when I spoke to an agent, they wanted to make sure, well, are you going to feed my actor? Are you going to give them the room to stay in? And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, and you, and, and I remembered when I was going to school visual arts and I did some acting and I acted for some film. I remember how shitty directors and producers treated me. And Mm -hmm. it's, and, and then when we were on set on the downtime, I remember talking to some of the actors and they were telling me some serious horror stories. And and I was like, oh, that's right. That's why every single agent, were, they were like asking basic questions. Are you going to feed my, our actors? Like, it's like, <laughs> of course we're going to feed the actors. Like, we made damn sure, Brian and I made sure that we were going to treat everyone with respect. We're going to, everyone had a room, everyone uh, we fed them good food. It wasn't just, it wasn't pizza. It was like, we actually had a really good caterer that was help. They um, served very healthy food because if you're just going to feed everyone carbs and shit food, then they're not going to perform good for you. They're just going to be lethargic and just fat blobs, you know, sitting all over on the set. You want to make sure that they have energy. And you all, you also just want to make sure that their living conditions, you just want to make sure that they have, they're happy. Because mm-hmm. then they're going to go that extra mile. And that, that I think, um, I mean, obviously we, we, we had SAG actors, but we didn't go union with, with the crew because we just couldn't afford it. But, um, you know, every, everyone really kind of put in that at the 11th hour of every day, everyone was still vibrant and ready to go. And I think that has to do with just the level of respect that we treated everyone with. Mm-hmm. So you have the, I keep saying about the time frame, but once you finished uh, filming it, uh, you know, how did the editing process go? Um, well, Lucas Labataglia w- w- is our editor, and um, he lives in Jersey. And so basically, I slept on his couch for, God, two months, pretty much. And uh, he did bas- he organized everything, put everything in files, you know, logged the film. And uh, then we just, you know, went through each scene. And uh, just started going back and forth with that. Sometimes he, you know, he kicked me out. Say, hey, look, Chris, you know, go for a walk, and I'd go for a walk, come back, and he kind of figured things out. Sometimes, you know, he would kind of go for a little bit walk, and then I would kind of maybe think things out. Uh, we've been working together professionally for since 2002, and um, we we actually met at, at School of Visual Arts, and uh, he was on set too. So having your editor on set. It's such a benefit because the way you shoot your film, you know, he's making sure, okay, is this going to cut together? Is this going to make sense? We're not missing anything. And just having that third eye on set is great because we really didn't have a big crew, but the editing process was great. And um, then, you know, he, he put in just some stock music and at the time we weren't, cause you know, you're raising money throughout the whole entire process. So, we raised money to start production, continue production, and then for levels of post-production. At the time, we didn't have the money to do an original score. There was no way that we were going to be able to do an original score. And Sean, who did our sound, said, hey, look, if you're thinking about doing an original score, I know you guys don't have a lot of money or any money, but I have a friend, Al Creeden, who could um, – he does a great job and I spoke to him and we were able to raise the money to, to get it, to, you know, get him, get him on board and having an original score just amplified what Lucas did as an editor, because you're watching this movie and you're watching it with, with, with stock music, just, you know, just filler music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't really hit every moment. So not having that timing down, right. 
you, you're like, oh, that scene could have been so much better. And you're, you're, then you start to second guess yourself. Like, oh man, like that scene looks good, but the music just doesn't fit. And music is everything in horror. So having Al come on board, and then he he lives in Philadelphia. So then I had to go down to Philadelphia for about a month, you know, back and forth. And uh, the process was great. I mean, seeing your film coming together, especially with the music, it's like, oh, my God, like this, it, this is like a real movie. I'm like, holy shit, like we did it, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot of, you know, peaks and valleys. And, and um, but, yeah, I mean, we pulled it off somehow and uh, I, I couldn't be more happy with the, with the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about the poster art? Because I think the poster is great. Thanks. Well, what we did was <laughs> with the poster, um, <laughs> we actually took a frame of a still frame of the film, one of the mm-hmm. characters, and then I kind of made it black and white and kind of did something with it. And then the Lucas kind of put it into some sort of, I don't know if you put it into illustrator and he kind of made it look the way it does. Mm-hmm. And so it was, both of us kind of working on it and then the placement of the, of the text. And then our publicist actually said, well, you definitely need to have a tagline. And so we put the tagline. It was actually like a bunch of people. Brian actually had a lot, lot to do with it as well. Um, but yeah, we're, we're really happy with the simplicity of it. The black, the white, the red, um, it, you know, we think it pops and uh, th- there's something mysterious about it. Something kind of, I, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of posters, they, they, sometimes they overthink it. And, and I like to kind of keep things simple because I think there's, there, there's a beauty in, in keeping things simple and there, and you can get very complicated in a good way by keeping things simple. Sometimes people think, look, if you think of like, let's say I keep talking about the shining, but you know, that every, everyone's seen that. If you look at mm-hmm. those shots, there, it, there's a simplicity to it, but it's an orchestra within these shots. It's not like he's doing like an MTV video where like, you know, it's, it's there's shots everywhere from every other angle. And like, Oh my, you know, and, and I think that a lot of films have kind of deviated from that. They kind of try to, they're all style, no substance. And I mm-hmm. think when you have substance, the style really shines through. If you're trying just to go with style, then it, and trying to appease audiences that, you know, just that are texting while driving, then, okay, then you're going to have kind of that kind of movie. And I, I don't want to have that movie. I, Cause I talk to intelligent people and they want a movie that, that is thought provoking, that, that makes them involved with the film. And so it all, I know you asked me about the poster. I'm kind of going off a little bit, but no, it's, cool. it's, you know, it kind of, I, I feel like the poster really encapsulates what we're trying to do as filmmakers. And, there's a complexity within the simplicity of, of what we're doing. And there's a beauty in that. And, and I, and I'm hoping that audiences will, will, um, you know, embrace that because, you know, it took a lot of work to, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said about the mystery, I like the, uh, the imagery of, uh, this woman with her, with her eyes covered with some kind of hood. Like a hood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. So, what what do you what do you plan on doing with the with the luring, uh, for from here? So, so basically, what we did was we hired a publicist, which was I think a very smart move on our part because a lot of when you make a film, it's not just the art; it's 
there's a business. And we, we knew that it was a business. And that's what, that's one of the reasons why we were able to raise money because we hired a lawyer. We were able to show our investors the breakdown of the investment and all that stuff. But then once you make the movie and it's finished, then you got to think about, well, what are you going to do next? And it's not like I'm, I have Hollywood blood in me or I know anybody in the industry, really. Um, a publicist can reach out and, and get it in front of distribution people, companies, and also agents. And our goal is to get a theatrical release, even if it's a small release. You know, seeing your movie on the big screen, that's what everyone wants. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if it played it in, in only a few cities, New York, L.A., great. You know, that, I'm, I'm good with that. But then the main focus would be VOD. And that's, that's something that we've been talking to agents and, and distribution companies, and that's something that they do offer. And we know, we know what we are. We're not, you know, we're not a mega Marvel movie. We're a, an independent film, and we're a small niche psychological thriller. And I, I think we can build a base through that and then kind of grow from there. Um, and I think we have to be realistic in, 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 in who our audience is, um, because I think sometimes people think, oh, well, I'm going to be, you know, everyone's going to love my movie. No, there's a, there's a, there's certain audiences that, that may like your film and certain audiences that may not concentrate on the people that, you know, will. And then from there it can, it can grow. And, uh, so with, with a clear understanding of what we want to do, articulating that with our publicist and with our marketing and all that kind of stuff. And when I say marketing, like it's really me and, and Brian doing the marketing. It's not like we have like people doing marketing for us. <laughs> right, we're, right, right. We're, we're wearing every hat imaginable. Um, but, uh, you know, getting a distribution deal is, is obviously huge for us. And by keeping the budget low, which means that's great for us because we don't have to make a lot of money to make a lot of money. And mm-hmm. I think, Filmmakers, if, if they understand how to make a film on an, on an ultra-low budget or micro-budget, ultra-low budget, um, you, know, you know, way, then, then, then they're, they're, they're able to and, and, and go work within your means but, and don't suck at it. And just because you, have, you don't have a lot of means doesn't mean you suck. You then rely on story or, you, re, you know, you have to be creative with the, within the box. You have to learn how to jump over those walls within that box. And I think a lot of filmmakers, what they do is they take a budget and they try to make a Hollywood blockbuster. Like, but you're not that. And it's never going to look like that. So once you embrace what you have and what you don't have, then you can break these rules and you can really become something that people are like, Holy shit, that, that was awesome. And what, what they, they only had that, that they only had $250,000 to work with, you know, because when people think of, of independent films, they think of, Oh yeah, that's not a lot of money. No, those, most of those independent films are ten million dollars plus. Mm-hmm. Like you know, a lot of people, and I love this movie. Get Out was a great film, but the sure. budget was ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. Our budget is two hundred fifty thousand dollars. There's a huge difference. Yeah, and when you when you're working with a, an ultra low budget film, I mean, I didn't have someone doing continuity. I'm doing continuity, so that meant that every little detail I got to pay attention to, and make sure that you know, the cigarette isn't, you know, flying all over the place, you know, in the scene or the way that they hold their cup or the way that their buttons are unbuttoned, or did they have that jacket in this scene because we shot it 10 days ago and, and, and how was she wearing it or whatever, all those little stupid little things. Usually you've got someone that's having a real budget means that 
I will, I don't have to wear every single little hat. I mean, I was directing this, producing it, but I also was the PA, you know, and, and I wouldn't have it any other way, but it's just, it just puts things in perspective and it doesn't mean our film. I mean, I think our film is great. The, the, the budget, you know, relying on story, I think is the way to go. But when people think of independent films, they, they, they think, I don't know. I really don't really know what they think, but they, I don't think that they think, Oh, that costs $10 million. Cause that's a lot of money. I would yeah. love to have $10 million for my next film. Yeah. I always say it, it's a very broad term, uh, independent film because exactly. Yeah, said, yeah. You know, there's movies that cost millions of dollars. And I think though, most people think of something that costs, you know, uh, much, much less, you know, under a million dollars anyway. But yeah, it could, yeah, I mean, you know, it could I, be something that costs like, you know, a few thousand dollars. It's, it's such yeah. a, it really is. I mean, when, when I, when I was at SVA, um, this is when, um, brothers and Bullen was coming out. Clerks was coming out. Slacker was coming out. You, you know, the, these were real, real ultra low budget, micro budget films that cost anywhere from 60 to $250,000, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I love those movies. Those, to, to have a director work within those walls to, to, to make something great with all these working with what they had, something, something is so special about that. And then somehow the word independent, just, you know, Hollywood's like, Oh wow. Pe- people like independent. So let's <laughs> cash in on that. We'll, you know, we'll put out this $80 million quote, independent movie. <laughs> it's like, right. wait a minute. So, so that, that term sort of, for me at least, you know, kind of, you know, I still sometimes when someone says independent, I'm like, whoa, wow. Like it, like, you know, back in the nineties, it meant something different than it means now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was even said, uh, at Fright Fest, um, a couple months ago and I was doing a bunch of interviews and, you know, it's all independent movies. And then the, cause the, there was this one animated movie and I was like, it looks you know, like it costs millions of dollars. And he's like, well, the budget was like, it was like, you know, $10 million. And I'm thinking, well, like that's that's great and all, but I'm just thinking in my mind, it's like, well, I, I don't really consider that independent movie at this point, you know, that it's costing you know tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, wh- oh my god, I would love to have a budget so I don't have to vacuum after we wrap every day because mm-hmm. you know sometimes the director kind of needs to do other things and but. But honestly, it's, it, it was a great experience, and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I wouldn't want to be born rich and, 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 you know, have like a, ten, you know, a loan from my dad for a million dollars and make that kind of movie because then you don't really, you don't really learn from there. I, I think you got to work from, from humble beginnings, and I think you become a better filmmaker because you really figure out, well, how can I make this work? And I don't have a lot of money, and and this is what I have to work with, mm-hmm. and and I think there's something special about that. And the films that I really like are tend to be ultra low budget films or foreign films that don't have a lot of money because they rely on story. And I and I want a good story. I don't want to see. I can't stand it when I go to a movie and and I'm like, oh, well, I know exactly what this is, how this is going to play out. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you know what the fuck? I mean, why don't just write something different? When when you write something and you and you and it's predictable, just do the opposite of that. Just just start with that. You know, like it's just sort of like, oh my god, are we so afraid of of being unique and different? Because that's how you stand out. That's how 
you know, real artists kind of emerge and, and because they, they had the balls to do something different and unique and themselves. When, when, when you start copying everyone, you're, I, I wouldn't want to live that life. Even if it pays more, I just, I'd rather, I'd rather be true to myself and I'd rather impress the people that I want to impress than, you know, just, I don't know, do it the other way. You know I mean? It's mm-hmm. just, uh, I don't I know. So, uh, <laughs> Where can you like uh, follow uh, the Loring or yourself like online to you know, uh, see where it's uh, going? So people can go to theloring.com and that's T-H-E-L-U-R-I-N-G.com. And from there, uh, they can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram. And those little icons are on the website so they can just, you know, click on that. Yeah. Any update that we have, we're going to be updating on theloring.com and on our Facebook and all our social media. But yeah, I mean, any support that we can get, any likes that we can get, any people following us, uh, you know, anyone could like reach out to us and ask us questions. But there's a lot of really interesting things that are happening. Like I said before, we are talking to agents and distributors and we are, we are going to secure a deal. Um, so that's exciting. And, uh, we will be making announcements, you know, the next couple of months or so. And so people are definitely going to be able to watch this film, but if they could support us now, and that's just, you know, showing us some love on social media and, 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 you know, interacting with our posts and stuff like that. Cause of course now, nowadays, everything's based on your social media status, which is kind of scary and, and exciting mm-hmm. at the same time. There has to be a, a you know, a balance of that, but, um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and people, we have a, an email address thing where on the homepage of our website, if they want to get special emails, um, you know, that we'll be kind of writing to them to remind them, hey, you know, this is what's going on with us and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so I, I guess it's kind of the best way for all those 8,000 ways that I just explained how they can support. <laughs> but basically, just go to the website, theloring.com, and from there they can kind of figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Go to your favorite social media page off the website. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's crazy how, how, you know, back in the day, like, you know, you kind of put up a sheet, you, you, you had a projector, and you hope that people <laughs> showed up. Now it's uh-huh. such a different animal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even when I uh, started the podcast, actually, I don't think the term podcast was around, but I remember early on, one of our uh, listeners, they were like, oh, you guys should uh, join this website, you know, Facebook. And I was like, ah, well, whatever. And he's like, well, do you care if I make one for you? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And, you know, that's that's how that all started. But, you know, I didn't think like those sites and I didn't think I didn't see the value in them. But uh this is, I guess, very oh, yeah, silly of me, but. <laughs> well, I mean, who knew? I mean, it's just, it's uh-huh. kind of, you know, I mean, I, I really don't like social media. I actually like talking to people and mm-hmm. social media, I think is obviously it's, it's a scary place when people are so consumed with it. So, but as a business, you have you to have, have it. To and it, yeah, yeah. And, and when we were raising money for the film, besides hiring a lawyer and having everything as a business, we, we also, you know, we felt we, we formed an LLC and we also had a website and we also had a Facebook. And, and so the investors at least are like, okay, they're doing everything right. And so that, that's important. So if filmmakers are really serious about doing their film, they, they got it. They got to get their business right. And they have to look the part. 
And so the business aspect of it is make sure you hire an entertainment lawyer, make sure that they draw up um, papers that w- when you, when you go to an investor, you give them, I don't I forget what it's called now, but it's a, it's a paper that basically breaks down the, the, the budget and, and what they're going to get if they get any money back, uh, you know, how it would break down. And so at least they're like, okay, well, these guys are serious. They hired a lawyer. They're not cheap and everything is clear and concise they have a website. They they all have they have, they have their ducks in a row. And especially with us, when we shot the first scene of the film, that was really the nail in the coffin that that sealed these great deals for us. Because then people can say, okay, yep, they 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 at least got their shit together. Where a lot of film filmmakers, they kind of leave out certain aspects of that, and that's not going to get you money because these people that are giving you money they usually own businesses and they know what it's like to have a business. And they're thinking of their investment very differently than the filmmaker. Because the filmmaker is doing it because it's a passion project. It's something that they want to do as an artist, but the investors, they just basically want to support the arts, but they also don't want to throw their money away. They want to make sure that even if they don't make their money back, they want to just make sure, am I investing in something that's worth, worth it? Is it something, a project that I'm going to be proud of? Because any investor that you have, you, you know, they become an, uh, an executive producer. That, that's their title. And mm-hmm. you want to, you know, they want to make sure like, you know, am I going to be able to brag about this or am I going to be ashamed of it? <laughs> you know, Sorry. you, you got to make sure that, and they want to make sure, can you finish it? Because mm-hmm. a lot of filmmakers, they, they don't know how to finish a film. And that's a huge thing that, that happens where they just don't know how to do that, which I don't know how you don't finish a film, but I, you know, I guess they just don't, have their shit together enough that they, they forget something or they, they just don't, they didn't budget it correctly. Or I don't know what, what happened, but I, I, a lot of people uh, that I know actually have done films and they actually didn't finish their films. And then they went into a whole different career because it kind of like, you know, they just felt defeated and just couldn't do it after that. And it sucks because, you know, they were talented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is your background in uh, filmmaking? Did you go to film school? Yeah, I went to I went to school of visual arts in, in Manhattan. Um, before that, I went to Glen Cove High School and got kicked out of Spanish class. and And the reason why that's important is because there was a, a TV program at my high school that actually had an amazing uh, teachers and equipment. And I learned the basics there. Went to school of visual arts, and then I opened up um, a production company. So I, I for a living, what I do is I uh, do for t- professional photography, and I and I produce write and direct videos for various different um, companies. So that was a huge help. So at least people saw my track record and said, okay, this guy knows what it's like to make a video for a multi-million dollar company and get, you know, make them very happy. So at least he's got that under his belt. And uh, that, that was a, that was a big thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I've done a lot of short films, very, you know, different kind of dark. I usually do dark humor or, or, or dark films. Uh, I have a, a, um, a horror movie, horror film called Cynthia that got a lot of um, hits on YouTube uh, because uh, I had some random writer that saw the film and just, you know, he got the film. Like he, and, and he wrote this great review and somehow that blew up that film, which was nice um, because I have other films that I think are even better than my horror film and they have like no views. So it's just kind of funny how YouTube works because you're like, all right, (laughs) you know, like how does it, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, 
my track record and, and the history of, of, of my past work is definitely was a, a factor for these investors because they wanted to feel good about their investment. And at least they wanted to make sure that we can finish the, the film and not just say, Oh, thanks for your money, but we have nothing to show for it. You know? <laughs> <Right>. uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so you short all your short films on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. They're on YouTube. If, if, uh, if you go to our website, uh, the loring.com and you look at the trailer and then you click on that YouTube uh, logo mm-hmm. that goes to my, uh, page or is this on, is this, no, this actually might be, no, yeah, this is on YouTube. Sorry, we just actually launched the trailer, so I'm a little new to this uh, trailer. Right. But yeah, and then you can kind of watch some of my uh, short films there. I've, I've got some, uh, if you like dark humor, um, I've got some of those films. Like my film Liz is a really funny film that I did a couple years ago um, about a guy who's in love with a mannequin. And this was before uh, that movie uh, with uh, that the guy oh, who loves the mannequin. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember can't the name. Think. Lars and the Real yeah. Girl. There you go. Yeah, it's, it was before that. Um, but yeah, I have a I have a bunch of uh, short films that uh, once the Loring kind of takes off, I, I might have to change my whole social media thing because you kind of like you work in levels. And some of the stuff that I have up there, like some of them are like really old films that I've done, even like when I was in college, because I wanted to show people my earlier work because I, you know I think it's interesting. When I went to SVA, I was actually watching directors. I was watching their commercial reels because I wanted to see, well, what, what were you doing before you were making films or music videos? And so I just, I, you know, I'm a very transparent person. I've always kind of enjoyed the process. And even with my earlier work, um, you know, I, I, I think it still stands. I think that there's still, uh, something there. And, um, so yeah, I mean, they, they just go on that. That's how they can kind of, you know, find that work. Mm-hmm. No, cool. I'd like to check that out. I'm really looking forward to seeing the Loring. Yeah, me too, man. I, I'm telling you, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And, and uh, you know, I, I think we really have something here. I'm really excited about it because we just had too many really intelligent people just really give me great advice. And I, and I listened and, and, uh, and yeah, the, the process was definitely a, a fun process and it's, I remember there was one time when, when, when Brian says, you know, are you happy with the film that you made as a director? And I thought that that was a really great question that he asked. Mm-hmm. And I, I am, I'm, I, this is something that I can feel proud of. And yeah, I'm re- I'm really happy with everyone's efforts. And obviously it's a collaborative experience. It's, it takes a village to make a film. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm really, really so excited. I, I think the trailer came out really good i think it shows off the film um in a really really good way and um yeah i think i think we have something here i'm really really excited well i appreciate you coming and talk to me and i'm looking forward to the movie and hope uh hope everyone checks it out when it's available thing i'm definitely going to send you an invite so <laughs> i'll keep All you right. posted very good <laughs> thanks again cool. i appreciate this yeah thank you i really appreciate it too thanks for having me yep good day have a good day you too